If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask you to give us insight into your word. Teach us what you mean when these words are here. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Teach us that we might accurately understand it and faithfully carry it out. In the name of Christ, amen. This verse in John 14, 15 is simple enough. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. However, that which is simple in Scripture is often made cloudy, made muddy by the flesh and by the, the wisdom of men and by the traditions of men. That which is clear and simple, straightforward in Scripture, often becomes a stumbling block to men because the flesh, the depraved nature of man, does not want to acknowledge that which is true and clearly expressed in Scripture. And because of that, we're going to take some time to unpack this verse and to make certain that we understand what it is saying, that we not misunderstand it, and therefore whenever we encounter others who tend to desire to misunderstand, intentionally misunderstand, we are equipped and able to uh, fight off, ward off those arguments, whether first in our own mind, but especially in the minds of others. Whether us or others, we should have clarity in what Jesus is saying. All right? Well, let's first establish that these words are Simple and straightforward enough. And Christ has said it more than once. 14.15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 14.22, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. 14.23, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Chapter 15, 15, 10. 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. 14.15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Simply means, if we truly do love Christ, and we love Him, our full devotion is to Him, and Him alone, if we love Christ, then we will keep His commandments. We will obey the commandments of Christ. We will obey whatever he says in his word. And if that is the case with us, then the Father, God the Father will also love us, and the Father and the Son will dwell in us. This is the teaching of Christ. This is the obvious, evident, clear, distinct, conspicuous teaching of Christ. It's not difficult to figure out. It's not difficult to understand. 
This is what he says. This is what he meant. If we love him, if we truly love him, we will obey him. If we love, we obey. If we don't obey, we don't love. If we truly love, we will truly obey. That is the straightforward teaching. Now, having said that, let's go a little bit more deeply into the passage. Firstly, we notice at the beginning, it starts with a condition. If. If you. If you. When a sentence starts with if, the first part of the clause states the condition. The second part is the result if the condition is met. Uh, met. If the condition is met in the if clause, the then clause will assert or explain the result that will transpire if the condition is met. In English, we don't always, and in the Bible does not always, present then in the then clause. Sometimes there's just a comma and then the then clause, such as our example. If you love me, comma, you will keep my commandments. Christ could have said, if you love me, comma, then you will keep my commandments. Sometimes that's expressed in the Bible and in English, and sometimes it's not. In either case, whether it's expressed or not, we understand that the two parts of the sentence go together. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's a conditional clause. However, we might ask, why in the world would he present a conditional clause? If you love me. Doesn't everybody love Christ? Doesn't everybody who says he loves Christ love Christ? Don't all of the disciples, the 12 disciples, love Christ in truth? Why would he say, if you love me? Why? Because the fact is, we don't all love Christ. The 12 apostles did not all love Christ, nor do people in churches... Throughout history, all love Christ. It doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter what they do. If they are not truly loving Christ, they don't belong to Christ. And we know that they don't belong to Christ because they don't keep his commandments. If you love me. First, among the disciples. They all didn't love him. They all did not love him. Among the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, the example of Judas Iscariot is presented in chapter 6. John 6, 66 to 71. John 6, 66. Judas Iscariot, one who walked and talked and preached the gospel, performed miracles, who understood the truth completely as Jesus taught. Judas Iscariot was not one who truly loved Christ. That's why he says, if you love me. Let's prove that Judas was not ever a believer, even to the day of his death. 666, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Jesus said, therefore, to the 12, to the 12, including Judas, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. 
and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Christ had many disciples walk away, verse 66. Then he challenges the twelve, mentioned there. The twelve in verse 67. And then in verse 70, the twelve. Verse 71, the twelve. He's talking about the twelve apostles. They were present, uh, present there, though the rest of the people walked away. Then he challenges them. Do you also want to walk away? You also want to go away. And Peter, Simon Peter, gives the correct answer. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We can't go anywhere else. What's the point? We understand who you are. We believe that you are the Holy One of God. That's true of 11 of the 12, not all 12. But at this point, Simon Peter does not know that it's not true of one of his friends, one of the disciples. He does not know that yet. But Jesus did say clearly to them that one of you is a devil. One of you is a son of the devil, John 8, 44. One of you does not belong to God. One does not, 11 of you do. And John the Apostle tells us clearly, it is Judas Iscariot in 671. Judas Iscariot. Well, John 13 now. Let's read John 13 to confirm that Judas Iscariot is not, was not a believer. 13, John 13, verse 10. John 13, 10 and 11. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you, For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Not all of you are clean. So Judas is not saved at this point, and he will not be saved. Some think Judas was saved, then lost his salvation. No, he was not saved. He was not clean. Now, verse 18, 13, 18. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. This scripture in Psalm 41, 9 had to be fulfilled in reference to Judas Iscariot that Christ was not speaking of Judas being blessed, Judas being clean. He's one that's not blessed and not clean. He's not Chosen unto salvation. Chosen as an apostle, yes. John 6, 66 to 71. But not chosen for salvation. No. Further we see 13, John 13 and verse 24. 13, 24. Jesus has said at this meal that one will betray him. So 1324, Simon Peter therefore gestured to him and said to him, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. That is John 
is telling, or, or Simon Peter is asking John the Apostle to ask Christ, who is this betrayer? You keep talking about the betrayer. Who is it now? 25, he, leaning back thus on Jesus' breast, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus therefore answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Jesus therefore said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. And so, after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Judas is the betrayer at the very meal. Now, 17, 12. 17 and verse 12. John 17, 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus says to the Father, before the event actually occurred, in the complete sense, I guarded them. I guarded, past tense, guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Of the twelve, who is the son of perdition? It is Judas Iscariot. Son of perdition, meaning son who will perish, the son who will be destroyed. He belongs to destruction. He is the one who will perish. Judas Iscariot. Then, Matthew 27, 3. Matthew 27, 3 to 5. This is how Judas ended his life. Matthew 27, 3. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. He went away and hanged himself, which means it doesn't matter for his salvation that he says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. It doesn't matter that he wanted to return the 30 pieces of silver. It doesn't matter that he felt remorse. That all doesn't matter because it was not remorse unto salvation. It was not, I have sinned, a confession unto salvation. Even his desire to return the 30 pieces of silver was not unto salvation. None of that was unto his salvation because in John 17, 12, and the other references in John, he's called the betrayer, son of perdition, who perishes, eternally perishes. Okay, that's one example of Jesus saying, if you love me. It's a condition because everyone doesn't meet that condition. Not only Judas, but others. Others also fit that description. John 6, 60. 
John 6, 60 to 66. John 6, 60. Many therefore of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you should behold the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result, also 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. This context calls the crowd that followed him his disciples. One could have the label disciple, but not be a true disciple. One can have that label disciple and not be a true disciple. These disciples, the crowd, the multitude, they don't like to hear the difficult statements that Christ preaches. They don't want to hear it. And even Jesus says in verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. They did not believe. Who would not believe? Because it was not granted to them from the Father. The Spirit did not give them life. They were still consumed and controlled by the flesh. And they walked away from him, 66. Just as Judas walked away from Christ eventually, the crowds walked away from Christ, and this is the way it will happen. The people who don't actually believe will walk away from the truth. Even if they are called disciples while they are with the truth for a while. John chapter 8. John 8, 31 to 59. John 8, 31 to 59. This is a very expansive example of how one can, can be said to be a believer, but not be a true believer. 8, 31. Jesus therefore was saying to those Jews who had believed him. If they had believed him, they are believers, but they are not true believers. They are false, bogus believers. They're not true believers. How do we know that though it says in verse 31, they believed him, that they're not true believers? They deny that they are in slavery. Verse 33, we are Abraham's offspring and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say, you shall become free? They deny slavery. Verse 37, they want to kill Christ. I know that you are Abraham's offspring, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. He's telling these so-called believers, he's telling these believers, you want to kill me because my word has no place in you. If my word had a place in you, you wouldn't want to kill me. You would want to love me. Keep me alive. But you want to kill me. Jesus accuses them of having their father as the devil, the devil as their father. Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. 
and therefore they are liars and murderers. John 8, 44. Also, he tells them directly that they don't believe, verse 45. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Verse 31 says they do believe him. Now, verse 45 says, you do not believe me. Why? Because it was a false belief. It was a fake belief. It wasn't a true belief. They were said to be believers, but not true believers. Furthermore, they accuse him. Verse 48, the Jews answered and said to him, do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? They accuse him of being demon-possessed and a Samaritan, not a Jew, attacking him like that. Then, 55, verse 55, Jesus calls them liars. Liars, believers are not liars. True believers are not liars. 55, and you have not come to know him, but I know him, the Father. They don't know the Father, And if I say that I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. And then finally, their murderous thoughts into action. Verse 59. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They didn't pick up stones for any kind of pleasant encounter. They wanted to put him to death. Stone him to death. Their murderous thoughts and words ended up showing in their actions. So they weren't true believers. This is an example, a second example from the book of John. 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5. In the Corinthian church, there was a man practicing sexual immorality. And the apostle takes this occasion not only to explain what the church should do to this unrepentant man in their church, but also others who will not repent. 1 Corinthians 5, 9. 1 Corinthians 5, 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, so-called brother, if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. This is an unrepentant man in this context. But he says, not only this unrepentant man, verse 11, so-called brother. He's called so-called because people call him brother but he's not behaving like a real brother. If he's not behaving like a real brother, then we call him a so-called brother. And not only the immoral, sexually immoral man, but covetous, idolatrous, uh, idolatrous people, uh, reviling, drunken, 
swindling, all of these kinds of sins are worthy of us identifying a brother or a sister in the church as so-called. So-called. Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 4. Galatians 2 verse 4. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. This phrase, false brethren or false brothers, he says, the apostle says, in the churches of Galatia, this is not just one church, but several churches in this region of Galatia, there were false brethren. They're called brothers or brethren, but they're not true. They are false. And how were they brought in? Into the fold of the local churches. Secretly brought in. And they sneaked in. Secretly brought in and they sneaked in to do harm to the local church. False brethren. We have to be able to know and distinguish between true and false. And back a page to 2 Corinthians 13. 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. He's telling the Corinthians, those who profess the faith, those who gather in the name of Christ, those who pray to Christ, those who have the gifts of the Holy Spirit among them, right? They do all of that. He's telling them in their persistent sin, when they sin persistently, he's saying here to test yourself, yourselves to see if you are in the faith. You have to be introspective. Look inside. Test yourselves. He doesn't mean only you can test yourselves, but he is exhorting them to test themselves. Because in 1 Corinthians 5, he told the church to test that one man who wouldn't repent. And then finally remove him from their church. In verse 5, test yourselves to see if you, you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. If you don't understand the word test, examine. If you don't understand the word examine, test. Same thing. Yourselves. And do not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you. Jesus Christ is in you, so therefore your life should be different. Your life should be different unless, indeed, you fail the test. If you fail the test, then Jesus Christ is not in you, and the way you live shows Jesus is not in you. Are these not exhortations explaining 
that we have to, whenever we love our sin, whenever we won't repent of sin, whenever sin persists in us, we have to ask ourselves if we love Christ. That's why he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It applies to all of us to always consider if you love me. So that's the conditional part applied to everyone. Applied to everyone. Everyone should be introspective, look within himself to ask this question. Whenever we love our sin, whenever sin is on the surface of our life, we must repent. Next we come to this word love. This word love. The word love in the Bible and outside the Bible, taken from the Bible, is a word that is abused. It is a word that's misused. It's a word that's twisted and distorted. It's mangled. This word love. We have to... Look at the word love the way the Bible looks at the word love, the way the Bible explains love, the way the Bible defines love, what the Bible means by love, not what the world means by love, not what your neighbor means by love, not just what your friends mean by love, what the Internet means by love, what bumper stickers mean by love. That's not how we should be looking at the word love. We must look at the word love the way the Holy Bible looks at the word love. That's the only way to understand love the way the Bible understands love. And in this case, in the very sentence, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Well, there we have one explanation, one definition. We have love of Christ combined with keeping the commandments of Christ. Whereas in the world and in many churches, people say love of Christ and keeping the commandments of Christ are not bound up together. They don't belong together. They are separated. Well, this verse says no. They are to be joined together. They cannot be separated from one another. This is one place where love is explained, where we cannot have love separated from Obedience to the commandments of Christ. It has to be joined. Love has to be joined to the commandments of Christ. Also, let's notice a few points on this matter of love. Having said that we must look at it biblically, let's see some illustrations of what the Bible means by it. Matthew 6. Matthew 6 24. The first point is that it should be love of God. Love of God. And if it's love of God, it cannot be love of anyone else or anything else. First point, love of God. 6.24, Matthew. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. 
You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is material possessions. You cannot have two masters. Why not? Because he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. It's either love or hatred. If you claim to have two masters, you're lying. Because Jesus said, you cannot have two masters. You can only have one. And one of those two masters you love and the other one you hate. Which means no one can say, I love Christ. I love God and have another master. Because he either loves Christ or he hates Christ. He either loves the other master or he hates the other master. The two cannot be combined. They do not mix. They must be completely separated. In the opposite direction, completely separated. It's either love or hate. You know, sometimes people want to dilute it. They'll say, yes, I love Christ, some. And I love this other thing or this other person, some. It's some of one and some of the other. Christ does not give us that alternative. He does not allow us to compromise in those ways. He does not allow us to dilute the word love, nor even dilute the word hate. We can't dilute hate and we cannot dilute love. It's either love or it's hate, one or the other. Matthew 22. Matthew 22. How much should we love how much? Matthew 22, 34 to 40. Matthew 22, 34 to 40. How much? And in what way do we love? Matthew 22, 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they gathered themselves together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, Which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. The whole law and the prophets depend on these two foundational commandments. What are they? The greatest commandment, the great and foremost one, is to love the Lord. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord and love your neighbor as yourself. This is where our love is focused, in two basic or fundamental directions. First, vertically, to love the Lord, and the second, our neighbor as ourself. So, When it says, you shall love the Lord, how much? Partially? 10%? 50%? 90%? 99%? No, it says, all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. All, all, all. God does not want two opinions. God does not want to share his glory with another. Isaiah 42, 8 He says he will not share his glory with another. Isaiah 42, 8 and 48, 11. Will not share his glory with another. That means 
All of the heart belongs to the Lord, to love him that way, not partially. And also, love of neighbor. We cannot define the way we want to love our neighbor. We have to love our neighbor as ourself, as oneself. Love your neighbor as yourself. We can't say we love our neighbor and then mistreat him because we would not want to be mistreated. Correct? We cannot define it, explain love in a way to justify our wicked behavior toward our neighbor by mistreating our neighbor, by doing injustice to him, by harming him or doing violence to him. That's not love. However, people might want to say it's love. It's not love because we would never do that to ourselves. Love toward God and love toward neighbor in that way. Okay, if that's the way we ought to love, then what implications are there? Number two, point number two implication on love. It's going to cost us a whole lot with our family. It's going to cost us a whole lot with our family. Matthew 10, 34 to 39. Matthew 10, 34 to 39. If you love me, if we love Christ, what's going to happen? Matthew 10, 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. Is that not contrary to the Christmas season? I did not come to bring peace on the earth. What did he mean though? He meant that he came to bring a sword that divides the sword of the word of the Lord, the sword of the Spirit, Ephesians 6, 17. That word will divide the members of one's household. The closest of relationships will be divided. And it's impossible, according to this expression or definition of love, it's impossible to follow Christ to have eternal life and to love our father or mother or any other relative more than Christ. It's impossible, according to this explanation. This is also the same in Luke. When Jesus said the following, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 26. Luke 14, 26. It's impossible to do so. We must love God to that extent. But if we do so, we should not be discouraged. Let's not be discouraged in doing so. 
Matthew 19. Matthew 19, we have a word of encouragement. Matthew 19, 27. Matthew 19, 27. Then Peter answered and said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. We have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or farms, for my name's sake, shall receive many times as much, and shall inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. There is great reward both in this life and the life to come if we follow Christ. Number three, another point, a third point to mention. This is actually an expansion of loving our neighbor. Point number three, that our love for Christ shows in the way we love one another. Love for Christ shows in the way we love one another. John 13, 34 to 35. John 13, 34 to 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. He left us with this commandment to love as he loved us and all will know we are disciples of Christ if we have love for one another. It's incumbent that true love of Christ be shown by the way we love one another. 1 John 2, 1 John 2, 7 to 11. 1 John 2, 7 to 11. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. If we love our brother, we are in the light and we are fulfilling this new commandment, which is really an old commandment. That's the way we love. Chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 10. 1 John 3, 10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. The apostle tells us it's easy, obvious, 
to make a distinction, to know the difference between a child of God and a child of the devil. And how is that possible? He gives us two ways. The one, anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. If he doesn't practice righteousness, he's not of God. And the second, nor the one who does not love his brother. If we don't love our brother, then we don't belong to God. We belong to the devil. And then he explains with an illustration. Verses 11, a couple of illustrations. One, a personal illustration, and then another general one. The personal one has to do with Cain and Abel, and then a general one afterwards. We start at verse 11. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain. When did Cain live? He lived from the beginning, when the world was created. He was in the first family, Adam and Eve's family. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his, bro- his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We might say, well, nobody here commits murder one against another. Well, sometimes that happens in churches. You will have supposed Christians in the same church or brothers in the same church and one murders another. God forbid it doesn't happen among us in the churches we know, but there are people all around the world who claim to be Christians and they murder one another in actual physical violence. They do that. They murder one another. Those are not true Christians when they murder. But also, if we hate, if we harbor hatred, and it doesn't actually lead to violence and actual murder, that murder is already in the heart, and that murder might lead to other actions. That is, disassociation, walking away, saying slanderous things, gossiping, It might lead to other things, even if that unbeliever, murderous man in thought, does not have the gall to actually commit the physical murder. He might show his hatred in other ways. And why can we say, why are we justified in saying that hatred might be shown in other ways? He says so. Verses 16 to 18. 16 to 18. We know love by this that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We ought to be ready and willing to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's how we'll know about love, verse 16. Now that is the ultimate sacrifice for our brother. But what precedes that? 
What little bit could we offer our brother if it's not our whole and complete life? Verse 17, the world's goods. Giving up our life, dying for our brother, sacrificing ourselves for our brother in some kind of dangerous incident, that is noble, and he says so here. Just as Christ did it for us, that's noble if we were to do it for another, right? But before we reach that extreme example, we have many little bits and pieces of ways we could show love to our brother that's very easy compared to that. Verse 17, Whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? There is no love. There's hatred. And hatred is residing in a murderer, he says earlier. Right? So we cannot love in word or with tongue. No lip service. Talk is cheap, we say, right? If you're going to talk to talk, you better walk the walk. We have all kinds of ways in English to say the same thing as the Apostle says here. Let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Truthfully carry out, truthfully obey, and show true love towards your brother. This is the true way. And if we do so, we love God. Why should we make the connection like that? 1 John 4, 1 John 4, 20. 1 John 4, verse 20. 20 to 21. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Plain, clear, straightforward, easy to understand teaching. It's impossible to love God and hate your brother. Impossible. If we do so, we are liars. We cannot love God if we cannot see Him. We can, though, love our brother because we can see Him. He's right there in front of us. So love Him. That's the connection. So when Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, that includes loving our brother. That's how we show we love Christ. We love God. If we don't love our brother, we do not love God. Point number four. Point number four, that this love, this love we have for Christ should be a lasting love, should be an enduring love. It should be something that continues. It's not temporary in love. It cannot be that way. Matthew 24, 12. Matthew 24, 12. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. 
Our love should never grow cold. Even if that's spoken generally, he speaks specifically to the church in Revelation 2. Revelation 2, 4 to 5. Revelation 2, verses 4 and 5. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Christ, he commended the church, but he also criticizes the church and says, you have left your first love. Why don't you have that kind of love for me, zeal for me, enthusiasm for me, as you used to have? Repent and do the deeds you did at first. See there? If you love me, you'll do the deeds, you'll obey my commandments, keep my commandments. And if you don't, I'm going to remove your lampstand. You will not have this blessing anymore. If you don't love me, I will not love you. In fact, 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. Well, that curse will be on us if that love does not remain for the Lord. We must always love the Lord Jesus from beginning to end. That's number four. Now point number five. Point number five. God's love of provision. How is it possible for us to love God, for for us to love Christ? Well, what precedes our love for God is God's love for us. And we will express it in at least the next three ways. Numbers 5, 6, and 7. God's love for us. First, in number 5, it is God's love of Provision. How do we mean that? What do we mean by God's provisional love? In what way did God provide for us? Romans 5, Romans 5, 6 to 11. Romans 5, 6 to 11. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps... For the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, But we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We were helpless. We were ungodly. We were sinners. We were enemies of God. We were unreconciled to God. And yet God provided the death of Christ on our behalf. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died is our provision. God's love is shown in the person and work of Christ. 
Galatians 2.20. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. He loved me and delivered himself up for me. John 3:16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 15:9 Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. John 15, 13, 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Christ loved us by his death. The Father and the Son demonstrated their love for us before we loved them. They provided for our redemption by the death of Christ. Point number six. Point six, God's love of predestination. God's predestinarian love for us. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1, 3 to 8. Ephesians 1, 3 to 8. He loved us by predestining us to salvation in Christ. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons, through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. He, in love, predestined us for our salvation. Predestined. 1 Thessalonians 2. 1 Thessalonians 2. Sorry. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 2 to 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 2 to 4. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, Beloved by God, his choice of you. Brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Second Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians 2.13. Predestinarian love, Second Thessalonians 2.13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, Beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith 
in the truth. God has chosen you from the beginning. We love because He first loved us. 1 John 4, 19. 1 John 4, 19. We love because He first loved us. He first loved us before the foundation of the world. That's why we now love Him. And lastly, number seven, as we explain love. The last point, this love that God has toward us is an eternal love. It's not a temporary love. It's not a fickle love. It's not ephemeral. It won't last just for a day or for a year, a month, or as long as we do the best we can. It's not that kind of love. It's an eternal love. Eternal all the way. Second Thessalonians 2, 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, Comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. It is love and eternal comfort. Loved us with eternal comfort. Jeremiah 31, verse 3. Jeremiah 31, 3. The Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. God drew his elect with loving kindness because of his everlasting love. Everlasting love. And also, that great expression of unending love in Romans 8. Romans 8.35. This love is an unbreakable eternal love. It's an unbreakable eternal love that God has toward us. Romans 8, 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, he says. And in case something in our mind isn't in this list, he says, nor any other created thing. And sometimes people say, well, my free will. My free will can separate me from the love of God in Christ They say that. 
But the apostle anticipated any excuse people might have because he said, nor any other created thing. Our free will is created. It's not eternal, it's created. Therefore, it is one of the things the apostle had in view here. There is absolutely nothing that can separate us from God's unbreakable eternal love for us. Because he loves us, we love him, and then our life shows that we love him. That's John 14, 15. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.